Let's go. Welcome to Citizen. We've got a special guest today, comedian Josh Denny. And you're from uh, Delco, right? Yeah, I grew up in Ridley Park. Oh, boy. How was that? It was, you know, pretty normal. <laughs> I don't know. We, we talk so much shit about Delco here because uh, one of our producers is from there. And he's got a lot to say about the area as well, um, having grown up there. What's it like? Yeah. I haven't really been back there for a long time. I, I moved out of that area when I was 15. I moved to Minnesota, and then I lived there for 11 years, and then I've been in L.A. ever since. So uh, the last few times I went back and visited, uh, it seems to be the same sort of shithole it's always been. So so no surprises then, right? You didn't. Yeah, not really. No, didn't. there's, just, <laughs> you know, people, people more dug in. It's so funny, too, because, like, you'll – uh you'll talk to like friends and family and they're like yeah dude we got all these blacks moving in the neighborhood ruining property values and you're like uh these properties have looked like this for 60 yeah. years it's just a very <laughs> i'm pretty sure you guys are ruining it for <clears throat> yeah no kidding um so uh what how old were you when you moved to minnesota uh i was 15 and it was the family moving you didn't run away no, no. My my mom lived in Minnesota. My dad. I was living with my dad on the East Coast, and then moved moved out there because I wanted to play hockey in college. Mm. Uh, and then uh, got hurt, missed a season of hockey, and then uh, got into music and stuff, and just sort of started doing band stuff at that time. Where in Minnesota are we talking? Southern Minnesota. So like, oh wow! Uh, I graduated high school in Austin, so it was like on the Iowa border. I don't I so I I don't think Iowa actually exists. I'm told it does. I've seen pictures and shit and I've ha I have friends that have allegedly been there. Some of the hottest women in the world I saw in Iowa. That can't be true. So true. Look at um look at Iowa Hawkeyes uh cheerleaders or just you can just type in Iowa Hawkeyes women. And, well, uh, we'll have we'll to we'll have to get away. into this later. I don't know that that's true, <laughs> um, but we'll see. I'll I'll, I'll definitely read. I'm I'm studious, so I'll look into it. Um, yeah. <clears throat> so now you're a comedian, right? Yeah, I've been a stand up since 2006. And how'd you get into that? Just bored, wanted to do something. I, yeah, that's what it was. No, I just uh, I had done the music thing for a long time. Then my one of my bands broke up in like 2005. And my buddies were like, you're funnier than you are talented as a musician. You do, you should do stand-up. And I never really thought anything of it. And then I saw Dave Attell in Florida, like Christmas 2006, and I was sort of blown away. It's the first time I'd ever seen comedy in a club. And um, and I just was like, it got the itch, went to an open mic like a week later, and been doing it ever since. So it all started with a backhanded compliment is what you're saying. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, like yeah. most good things. Yeah. That's a good uh, good advice for you guys out there trying to find your way in life. Just listen to the people that are talking a little bit of shit. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and now you're on tour with uh, a couple of uh, a couple of folks. Most people know Anthony Anthony Cumia and Gavin McGinnis. How's that going? It's going well. You know, we had some trouble at the end of last year with uh, Antifa and local politicians canceling our gigs for us, but. Uh, you know, this year we've we kind of come back stronger. We're you know we're ending racism on this tour, so you know it's kind of hard for them to uh, to sell it as a a hateful white supremacist comedy tour when people look at our branding. Um, now it was my understanding that Kylie Jenner ended racism with that Pepsi commercial a few years ago. Yeah, you mean Kendall? The, Kendall, uh, yeah. I don't. I can't. Pepsi, yeah. If you put all of those people in a lineup, I wouldn't be able to identify any of them, to be honest, except for maybe yeah. the one that was a dude at one point. Yeah. Uh, yeah. No, she. Uh, you know, she tried her best, but she was unsuccessful at ending racism. Mm. But we're gonna do it with uh, comedy this year. She probably should have used Coke. I mean, Pepsi sucks, right? Yeah, I don't know if you're gonna bring people together over Pepsi. Yeah. It's like, why would you go tier two as your fucking remedy? That doesn't even make any sense. Yeah, that might be a way to get like two different groups of Latinos together over <laughs> Pepsi. But I don't think you can. I don't think you can solve the big one. Or like I grew Pepsi. up in South Carolina. It could be people from down there. They like Pepsi. Really? So, yeah, it's very bizarre. So they like to put uh, 
One of the things that I grew up around that never made any sense to me was people would buy a Pepsi and a bag, one of those small, like long bags of peanuts and then pour the peanuts into the Pepsi. Um, Oh, it's disgusting. Yeah, I don't understand it. Never did. Um, I'm a big fan of peanuts. I don't really drink soda much, but uh, yeah, that always seemed bizarre to me. Yeah, I don't. That doesn't make sense. You know, it's I've always wanted to, you know, like you go out to a restaurant and uh, and and they'll be like, you'll be like, can I get a Diet Coke? And they go, we only have Pepsi. Is that OK? I always wanted to just shoot somebody in the fucking face when mm. they say that. No, it's not OK. You know, there's they almost ask that question arbitrarily, like they're not expecting an honest answer. And I feel like it would be fun to just you know mix it up a little bit. Yeah, I don't I mean, <clears throat> I. There's something to be said for being polite in society and stuff, but um, there's a point where it becomes pathological, right? Where you start to become yeah. a doormat for everybody. It's important to stand your ground at some point, not just in Florida, but everywhere. Well, I mean, you know, and it's also just what a boring existence to just give people what they expect all the time. You know what I mean? Like, conver- even conversationally, like, you know, when people ask you the question of how you're doing, they never want the real, honest, in-depth answer. So I don't know. I, I guess maybe I'm just bored in life. And when people ask things like that, I like to just throw a little Molotov cocktail into the conversation. Yeah. See how people respond. Yeah, I'm the same. Or, I mean, you could say throwing a pebble into the lake to watch the ripples, but really it is fire-based for the most part. Yeah. Well, and also just people have no idea how to comprehend anything real anymore. They're so used to just sort of going with the flow and everything is so guardrailed in society that people just don't they don't know how to have unexpected conversations about things that they're uncomfortable with. Why do you think that is? I mean, it it seems like it's some kind of mix of. um, We're just not going through the paces as human beings to develop resilience from an early age, like this whole anti-bullying bullshit that's been going on for the last couple of decades. I'm totally against that. I think bullying plays a really important role in society. Um, but everybody's thin-skinned now, and then there's also the added social pressure of, of you might say something and people are, you know, are like, uh, wow, you can't say that. Like, well, I, I literally just said it, so I don't know what you're talking about. Well, bullying is sort of like a symptom of a thing that was actually good about society was that it wasn't curated to your taste all the time. And that's the problem with technology and social media and the ability for people to sort of build and find their own niche communities right away. Like, um, you know, some of the shit you're into or some of the things about your personality are, are weird and not mainstream. And so bullying was sort of a byproduct of assimilation of like, no, most of the tribe thinks that's stupid. And so you have to deal with the discomfort of having something that's, that's sort of, about you that's sort of different or or doesn't quite fit in with the group and it builds resilience i mean now when you can curate your social experience at such a a young age and only interact with people that are exactly like you or approve your exact point of view about different things you you are not met with anything that produces uh, the effect of resilience or creates that or fosters that yeah it's almost like we took these weird these weird like niche high school drama interactions where it's super fucking dumb, just completely devoid of any kind of substance or anything and stretch that out now over the course of an entire adulthood. You know what I mean? People expect to have that same level of control over their lives. It's yeah, it's funny. It's like the tribe. Most of the tribe thinks you're dumb for doing it. So you get two choices. You can either be a bitch and stop doing it, or you can say, fuck you, I'm going to do what I want and have a good time, and you can accept it or not, right? I mean, those are your two choices typically. But now there's a third choice, which is to completely – well, you're still engaging in society technically, but not really, right? Not in a way that really matters. Well, we need each other less. You know, like that's another thing that technology has ruined is like historically communities were built on mutual needs. And so going back to the the earliest days of civilization, you, you, hunters needed gatherers um, to survive. They needed builders to build, you know, living uh, quarters. They needed, you know, so they had mutual needs. In my father's generation, it's like, 
you had a plumber on the block, a mechanic, you had people with different specialized skills. And now with technology, everything you could potentially need is a click away. And so there really is no incentive to have to get to know a guy that maybe you don't agree with everything on because you guys have things that you both need from each mm. other. And so there, there is, so you know, the, this whole necessity is the mother of invention. Um, having fewer and fewer necessities or things that are hard to come by allow people to be so much more um, discriminating in who they socialize. Like your social life can be purely just based on social things. And that's not really the way even my generation came up. <clears throat> yeah, it's interesting. It's a good point. Um, just our, our, the fact that we need each other for different things kind of forced us to get along in, in some ways. Now we're kind of beyond that, which is, I mean, that's fucked, right? I mean, th that, that's just, uh, we're on, we're on the, we're on the slippery slope now to complete division at this point. Well, and the other thing that would bleed into that, right. Is like, you need your mechanic cause you don't know how to fix cars, but your mechanic also lived a completely different life than you came from a different culture, probably, different background, different set of life experiences. So you get your needs met, but you also gain perspective in how you interact with that person because they've walked a different path than you. And I say, I said this on Twitter this past weekend, but like so much of what people describe as like mental health problems, it's not, you're not mentally ill. You have a lack of perspective. You think being sad is a sickness because you don't have the perspective from anybody else that has it way worse than you. Um, you would treat your so-called mental illness like a fucking batch of the sniffles if you had perspective of somebody who lives a much harder life than you. And you don't. So you don't. And so feeling sad or anxious feel like real catastrophic events to people who do not have perspective from those who've had a harder life than them. And there are always people who have had a harder life than you, no matter what path you've walked. And if you don't know any of those people, yeah, waking up and not feeling 100% might feel like a fucking disease to you because you have no perspective. Yeah, and that's a symptom of, uh, of modern society for sure in the way we interact with each other and the ways we don't, I guess, now interact with each other. I mean, people from different cultures and different political beliefs now are very bristly with each other right off the bat regardless of what's happening. But there's also this institutional push to, I guess, capitalize on the victimization bullshit. You know what I mean? Like, they, it's not just that people, because society is the way it is, because technology has become our primary means, uh, modality of communication now. It's not just that that's causing this. It's also that, you know, kids are being taught that to, they're, they're essentially being untaught cognitive behavioral therapy, which is to not catastrophize everything. Now everything is a catat. Now it's your feelings matter all the time. Like you should prioritize yourself and make sure you're okay and all this self-care nonsense. And this is not like we've never operated that way before. We're, we're community-based creatures. If you think about yourself more than you think about other people, you're not going to be a value add to the community. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, you know, and, and so much of that I feel like died when, when we sort of homogenized cultures. Like where I grew up in Delco – in the time that I did, like our culture was a big part of, you know, who we were, not our race, but like if you were Italian, if you were Irish, if you were German, you know, you had some of those things ingrained in your culture. Um, and for a lot of us, there was this sort of cult like the, the thing I love about growing up in Delco and Philly is that it's a place that sort of uh, their biggest trophy is their misery. Mm. Um, and, but there's also this element of growing up sort of blue collar Irish where your feelings didn't matter to anyone. <laughs> you know what I mean? It was just like the work is the work. You know, I, 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 I often claim the phrase, it is what it is, is the Irish national anthem, mm. right? It's just, it's the way we were raised. It is what it is. There's nothing you can do about it. And if there is something you can do about it, do it or shut up. Yeah, you know, so it's sort of like um, in in the homogenization of culture where we just started calling all these people white, we sort of lost these cultural nuances, right? The the focus on food and family in Italian and community when I was growing up was a big thing, Sunday dinners and and so when we just started calling all these groups of people white 
and stopped sort of uh, through the the purposes of being politically correct, stopped calling out their cultural individuality. We lost all the good that came with that, too, which was, you know, some of the things I mentioned, senses of family, hard work, uh, not putting your feelings first, you know, things like that. And that, that stuff is all that stuff will be dead with my parents' generation. <clears throat> yeah, that's uh, that's definitely the case. I mean, I think about um, growing up in a primarily Irish family as well. It's like you co- everybody complains all the time, but nobody gives a shit about you complaining. You know what I mean? Right. It's not like they're like, oh, it's okay, buddy. You're going to be okay. They're like, all right, dude, that's kind of gay. Why don't you just relax a little bit and go fucking mow the lawn and shut the fuck up right quick? I mean, you know, it's like – yeah. Complaining every, is white noise. It's sure. conversational. Nobody's expected to do anything about right. it. Right. But every, everybody needs that release valve. You need to be able to complain. But it doesn't do anybody any good. Like, a, I mean, a child falls down and you can treat it one of two ways. You can say, hey, get up, buddy. You're fine. Or you can be like, oh, are you okay? And they're gonna, you're, the child's reaction will be measured in how you respond to their uh, event. Right? Mm-hmm. They're either going to fucking internalize that and... Uh, catastrophize and be like, oh my God, my knee is actually scraped. I'm going to die or whatever the fuck, or they're going to get up and start laughing and that'll be the end of it. Right. And we've treated, it's it's all behavioral conditioning. Yeah. And we've treated this entire generation as though for, for whatever reason, like I understand that life is quite a bit more comfortable now and we're not just trying to stay alive all the time. I get it. But I don't know why we thought it was going to be effective or even okay to treat everybody like they should feel victimized by life because life does kind of suck a little bit from time to time, if not most mm-hmm. of the time, to be honest. Yeah, it's part of it. Um, but why? What? What good does it do to focus on that? You know what I mean? Well, and historically, like hardship is what bonded people. Mm. You know, in, in a way where it was sort of healthy and productive. I mean, it's it's pretty simple, honestly. Like, you we can fix society in one generation by refusing to send kids to college. I mean, every person I know who didn't go to a traditional four-year university in the last 20 years is normal, meaning they're either people who went before it was completely woke um, and before they became indoctrination camps for victimhood, or people who went or, or people who didn't go at all went into the trades, skipped out of college, you know, did some non-traditional path into adulthood. Those people are all normal. It's literally the path to restoring America is just refusing to send kids to college. It's that simple. It would be a good first step. And we certainly wouldn't be in a situation where we have, um, what is it, 11 million young men between 18 and 35 that are unemployed right now for some reason. I mean, I think it's the largest block of unemployed people in the country right now that are eligible for is work. Is that age group? Yeah. Yeah. Or, or or maybe maybe it's that that is the highest number of that particular age group in the history of this country. Either way, um, that you're you're talking about the people who do <clears throat> that eighteen to thirty five year old male does most of the labor in this country, right? Should should do most of the labor. Well, they do. They still do, regardless of what anybody says or what any kind of DEI project is trying to uh, get passed through. They still do almost all of that work. Um, and now we have not a shortage of jobs. We have open jobs and people won't do them anymore. And I, I can't imagine that. Like you, you, the community that you grew up in and that I grew up in, that would be completely unacceptable. There's no such thing as an open labor job somewhere, right? Not for very long anyways. Yeah. And in either place, by the way, in Philadelphia or in Minnesota, like the, the values of around work were very similar. Like there wouldn't be you know, there wouldn't be a kid sitting at home playing video games, not making any money uh, when there are like, you know, jobs that pay, quite frankly, jobs that pay like 30 to $40 an hour for hard backbreaking labor. Like your parents would have been like, get off your ass and go get one of those jobs Yeah, and transform your life. And uh, there's this idea, again, it's, it's all about feelings. It's like, well, I don't want to do that. And it's like, boy, what a luxury to think that what you want to do supersedes what you have to do. In a weird way, it's like that's what that was kind of the magic of accidental pregnancies, right? Is because a lot of those guys immediately were like, oh, I guess I don't get to think about what I want to do anymore because mm-hmm. I wanted to bust the nut and I did. And now I'm a father and I have responsibility. So I guess I'll go do the oil job. You know, and so I think that that's kind of another thing that I think is 
detrimental to society another part of it like keeping kids out of universities now is a good way to do it but also like you know letting kids go out and knock their girlfriends up i think is a great way to force them to grow up faster because you know with the avoidance of that uh now now you have this sort of peter pan syndrome where so many young guys are like i'll just live at home my parents make you know couple hundred thousand a year combined they don't they don't force any responsibility on me i could just be a child forever <clears throat> yeah i mean that's a it's a good point it's uh everybody needs no matter how disciplined you are unless you're jocko or tim kennedy or somebody like that you need guardrails in your life and i, I know those now, wouldn't it be wouldn't it be nice to be that self-motivated all the time yeah but i know these men uh tim especially is a really good friend of mine and he even he has guardrails for himself that's why he's so yeah. goddamn disciplined you know what i mean that's the point but uh even even then down to the very lowest level. Even these guys need guardrails in their life, but for sure people who are not constituted as such need guardrails. And I think, uh, you know, if you're feeling lost in life, uh, especially as a man, because your life is going to ultimately be defined by your purpose, and your purpose is going to be something involving your masculinity, hard work, protecting, providing, stuff like that. If you're feeling lost, it might be a good idea to find some responsibilities for yourself that you can't like negotiate your way out of you just have to deal with i'm yeah. not i'm not saying go fucking knock your girlfriend up on a whim or anything like that although that's not the worst idea considering our birth rates in the country right now but uh you should find something you should find something that's non-negotiable in your life so add something to your life that makes you fucking grow the fuck up and start to and not not only is it going to make you a better person and make you take responsibility for things which is going to get you more invested in not just the community but also yourself <clears throat> but your quality of life is going to go up quite a bit. Your mental health is going to is going to stop suffering from this purposeless drag that young men, especially in this country, are, are experiencing right now. And it, this is the, this is one of the worst things I think I've ever seen in my life is all these shiftless layabout young men, and and we're seeing it. I've seen it personally a lot of in a lot of different forms throughout the years, uh, studying security and criminology and stuff like that. The same thing that happens to young black men in the in, in inner cities or uh, uh, Arab terrorists, right? They can't, that they don't have any purpose or find job. They're easily persuaded into these fucking, uh, uh, to wearing a goddamn suicide vest in some cases, right? But certainly into, you know, giving up their lives for this stuff. It's the same thing that causes people to be criminals. It's the same thing that causes people to be mass shooters. It is nihilism brought on by a complete lack of purpose, particularly when it comes to masculinity. You have this internal rage that needs to be, Conditioned such that there is a a moral, I guess, <clears throat> excuse me, there's a moral balance to it where you're effectively using it to protect the community. That's what it's made for, right? And when you don't do that, that rage is going to find an outlet somewhere. And if it doesn't find an external outlet, it's going to find an internal outlet. So suicide, mass shooting, terrorism, gangs, it's all the same shit to me. Yeah, it's interesting. I think... Um... I think, yeah, I think in, in a lot of cases I, they can be related in that way. I, I think there's some I think there's some subtle differences in the motivations between which one of those things people gravitate towards. You know, I think um, I think mass shootings, there's the, that element of instant fame as well, or just sort of being mm -hmm. noticed or acknowledged. Um, whereas I think with like religious extremism, there's more about trying to f belong to some sense of larger community or purpose that you didn't have in the first place. Like, um, and there's just no, you know, like with like radical Islam, there's just no querying, um, because there's, there's sort of like where it, where it lives, they did a good job of eliminating any sort of dissenting opinion for mm. pushback. So, you know, my, my girlfriend's family is Iranian. And they were <clears throat> her grandfather was a general in the Shah's army and they were essentially forced out of their homes during the revolution. You know, they tried to assassinate his whole family mm -hmm. in the middle of the night. And, um, you know, so they did a pretty good job of just like ravaging any dissenting opinion. And then, of course, those people all fled, you know, like the, the Baha'is and the, and the Persian Jews and everybody with different religious beliefs and stuff rather than fight for their homeland. Yeah, even a lot of the just, Zoroastrians, which is one of the oldest religions in, in yeah, human history, yeah. still had to flee that place, which is kind of fucked up. Yeah, everybody. Up. 
Yeah. So they they all and they all just went to Sweden and the United States. Mm. And and so what's interesting is, you know, I think we look back at that when we talk about American intervention, uh, you know, interventions in foreign conflict. It's like uh the libertarian in me says it's none of our business but then when you look at the sort of the way that that pernicious ideology has now bloomed and blossomed over there from that point forward boy imagine what the world would be like if we maybe nipped that in the ass 30 years ago or 40 years ago when it first reared its head and and by the way you could go back to the crusades and say we we didn't do a good enough job of exterminating <clears throat> that ideology back then so you know, it's just like I, I think when we meet bad ideas anywhere, we have to be willing to fight. I get this argument from people all the time, like, Josh, why do you still live in Los Angeles? It's like, well, what what, what would it mean with all the things that I say about how to fix the world if I left the place where it's the most fucked up? You know what I mean? Like, it's been my home for 16 years. I met my my girlfriend of 11 years here, and this has been her home her whole life. Why would I just forfeit it to people whose ideas suck you know i feel like that's such a cowardly way to be and by the way how long before that just becomes america where they go now america is about this if you don't like it leave what is everyone going to do get on ships and go to somewhere else so i i think the running it's one of my biggest points of contention with owen benjamin who acts like this you know uh, fire and brimstone, you know, idea slayer. And he lived in the heart of Los Angeles and fled as soon as it, it turned against his point of view. And I think that's what weak people do. I still go into the spaces that I've always gone into and I'm still myself and I still speak what I believe, whether it's wildly accepted or not, because difficult things are important. And I think, you know, when you ask like, why did I go from you know, working six figure a year jobs and living comfortably to sort of through a pinball machine of uh, variables now sort of forced into this role as a um, a truth speaking comedian who is sort of like one of these canceled guys, right? Who uh, speaks passionately about things that I think are common sense and then I think are core to America and American values and Western values, but where I live, not well received and certainly not the majority opinion and so why did life put me in that position uh i think it's god calling me to a higher purpose and so to run away from that and go well people don't like me here i mean that would be not answering the call yeah i get it from that perspective but uh paying taxes like that and not being legally allowed uh -oh. to own the guns I want to own, that would not uh, work for me. you think I pay those taxes. Yeah, fair right? enough, right? Okay. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, I, I think, uh, you know, I've, I understand what you're saying. I think that's a good point. I don't like to, I mean, I live in Austin, so I can't really say much about living in liberal areas. And I lived in Oakland yeah. before this. Um, so, again, can't say much about that either because Oakland's a fucking liberal shithole as well. Although I, oh, that place is I, I, I like living in liberal cities because everybody's a pussy and I just dominate. You know what I mean? It's like the easy. It's like um, it's like playing basketball against six year olds. I just fucking dunk on people constantly. You know? <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah, exactly. <clears throat> I mean, it is. And, and by the way, like, I, you know, it, another thing, too, is like all the stuff I just ranted about for 10 minutes about forcing yourself into situations that are uncomfortable. Well, what's more uncomfortable than living in a place where everybody hates you and disagrees with your point of view? Like if I'm really trying to forge my mind and, and be able to have perspective and create, you know, content, whether it's stand up or podcasting or writing books or whatever, uh, I need to be in a place that's sharp. Like no, no good artist or creative person of any kind is just surrounded by people that constantly agree with them. And, yeah, it's and, not very iron sharpens iron to hang out in fucking information silos for sure. Yeah, exactly. Like to just go to a place where everybody goes, yeah, dude, me too. It's like <laughs> that's not that's not going to make me an interesting person or a sharp thinker sure. or, or relevant in any way. Well, how do you find yourself expressing all this? I mean, do you, you, you say you're there because you think it's important to be there. Um, are you trying to have conversations with people to kind of bring them closer to your side? Because I've always – I've gotten really uh, tired of the – this proclivity people have, particularly in political conversations, but in any conversation now, just to try to fucking plug their ears and say, la, 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 or try to shut the other person down, which you've experienced over the last couple of years as well. Do you like what, what exactly do you feel is your responsibility to start conversations? Because it's always been my position that good or bad ideas are defeated by good ideas, not by brute force, typically. 
Yeah, I, I, I think so. Um, I think a little, like, I think in the debate space, yeah, I, I use the analogy when people were, um, when people were coming at me for my take on abortion, they said, you know, well, you make good points, but it's your delivery that's, that's problematic. And I go, uh, yeah, but there's different tools for different jobs, right? A guy like Ben Shapiro is a scalpel. It's well-researched. He knows his stuff. He's incredibly articulate. I like to think of myself as more of a sledgehammer. And the the way that I kind of, you know, incorporate that is as a comedian. Like, I don't believe these people can be rationed with. And I think you could make all the great points in the world in the end of the day. They're, they're not living by a, a logical barometer to begin with. So to argue with logic is sort of like it's it's um a losing strategy so i think ridicule is the only way to sort of it goes back to what you said about bullying right like i i, I joke all the time i go dude if, if fat shaming actually worked on me and i wasn't so hardened by being made fun of as a kid that it doesn't do anything to me anymore i'd be shredded <laughs> i wouldn't be fat at all uh but the problem is is that i was ridiculed so much and my skin is so hardened from it that i I don't feel anything from being shamed or made fun of or any of that. So I can't, I can't get any discipline from that, <clears throat> but that's not the case with most people who have really bad ideas. Most of them have never been challenged. Like one of the things I run into a lot in uh, the podcasting space out here in LA is you'll like run into um, black intellectuals, like kids who went to really, really good schools and sort of have gone through life in a way where they've never been challenged or interrupted because of their race, like to, to question what they're speaking about would be racist in its nature. So a lot of times they just get to speak over everyone without having any facts or anything true or ha being forced to like provide examples. And I run into those spaces a lot and um, and I'll call that out instantly. Like this isn't this isn't a university. You're not going to be unchallenged with the way you think because you're black. That doesn't intimidate me. So let's actually have a real conversation. And so um, a, a lot of those people are not conditioned to even be challenged, let alone have their ideas ridiculed. And so I think that's a much I think it's a much more effective thing um, because the, the beauty of that is that it's not based in any facts or anything like that it's just all about perspective and it's like well I, you know i'm just sort of using what you're saying to make you feel stupid and i think that is a more lasting effect than just besting somebody in debate like i i've seen you know you'll see matt walsh you know debate some trans person about you know with the what is a woman stuff and he'll get the best of them and that video will go viral and everyone in the comments will go man he really told her or him or whatever it's supposed to be and it's like you don't see a video of that person a week later going like i'm not trans anymore he yeah, got me yeah, yeah you know what i mean so that that is not the way to win no it's never so in any nego in in debate is effectively a nego if you're doing it in good faith the debate is a negotiation right i mean that's what it's supposed to be you're trying to win somebody to your side whether it's the audience or the individual they're speaking to and in any negotiation, particularly when it comes to diplomacy, diplomatic style negotiations, you have to leave the subject some kind of out, some kind of like noble, uh, 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 gracious out where they can change their mind without be, without feeling like a fool because of it. Otherwise, you, you've yeah. done nothing, right? I, it's like the way that these <clears> – <throat> Even Shapiro, the way that they go into universities and dunk on dumbass 19-year-olds, I'm not really impressed by that shit, to be honest. I think it's kind of fucking – It's just to me, it's just for fucking clicks and ratings and stuff. I don't think yeah, they're – Yeah, it'd, like, it'd be like putting a triangle choke on a guy who's never seen a gym, you know? Oh, like that guy in New York? <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> That's a good one. Yeah, yeah I didn't even think about that. But yeah, yeah fuck him. Um, yeah, fuck that guy. But yeah, I mean, to your other point about <clears> – <throat> Bullying. If there's if there's a tool out there, uh, and let's call it bullying or social pressure or manufacturing consent, which I think is something that Noam Chomsky used to say back in the day. Um, yeah, isn't it funny how all the liberal guys, like you know, ridicule being the greatest weapon? All these things came from like liberal writers and professors. Oh yeah, Saul Litsky, Noam yeah. Chomsky. Yeah, but if there's you know, a and it's, yeah, and we don't even use those things against these people. You know what I mean? Like they probably a don't even know that these that that methodology came from their supposed intellectual side 
Um, and we don't even do a good job of using those things against them. I mean, that was like a classic Alinsky thing, right? Mm. Which is, uh, you know, use use your enemies' tactics against them, mm. you know, essentially make them play by their own rules. So make them set the rules and then hold them to them. Yeah. Or maybe the best debate strategy of all time, which is to – and we still – we use it in interrogation today. You You – know the answer to something and you ask a question of somebody that holds a position that you know is indefensible and you ask them questions until they have to admit that their position is indefensible. That's mm -hmm. a, that's a Solinsky thing as well. And we, I, yeah. I like li literally we use this in military interrogation to this day, uh, not just military, but the police as well. So it's, you know, there's, these are super effective tactics. Um, and it's obvious that they are, right? I mean, that that was the point of liberalism is to get into the head and think about these kind of things, do thought experiments and figure out how human psychology works. Um, but modern liberalism is defined by the work of a literal child rapist, right? Like this fucking uh, uh, Michel Foucault guy was literally raping children all over the world. And when people run into that information downstream, when they're studying postmodernism, they're like, well, how do we... How do we deal with that little pesky fact? Well, you throw all of his research into the ocean is what you do because the guy was a goddamn yeah. sociopath. You know what I mean? Yeah, it's, I, I, I do love that when people are like, I don't know if I can listen to R. Kelly anymore. And you're like, well, you might want to take half the books in your home library and throw yeah. them away because yeah. some of the stuff you actually live by rather than listen to is uh, written by way worse people. Yeah, no shit. Uh, and, but, you know, some of the folks that pioneered uh, human psychology research. Uh, like, I mean, even in the later part of the 20th century, Noam Chomsky was one of them. Just his, his treaties on human psychology are fucking, I think they're pretty, pretty spot on in some cases, but if that kind of thing mm -hmm. exists, if that, if that's a tool that that exists that can be used to affect somebody's life, that's quite the tool, isn't it? I mean, that's, that's quite the thing that you can use this very ubiquitous social interaction that, that, most human beings will experience from the day they're fucking able to speak until the end of their days. That's quite a tool to be able to affect somebody's life like that. And like any other tool, <clears throat> it's not intrinsically good or bad. It just depends on how you use it, right? So if can you use that kind of tool, social pressure, manufacturing consent, or whatever it is, bullying to improve people's lives and develop their ability to self-discipline themselves? The military would say, yes, you can absolutely do that. Right. I mean, there's a blueprint for it. We've been doing it for thousands of years for all, almost all of human history. We've been using this pretty effectively. And now we're in this stage. Uh, and maybe it's just the late empire stage. I don't know if this is more if this has been common throughout history, but we're in this stage now where we have no epistemology left. There's no fucking reality. There's no truth. There's no true north that everybody can point to and say, you know, this is. Whatever else is going on, we can all agree on this. I thought it was like yeah, protecting kids. I thought it was that. I thought that I would thought be, so. yeah. I, I thought that would be the thing, and not not politicians and you know degenerate corporate people and shit like that. But I thought average voters, you know, just regular Westerners, re regular Americans, would draw the line at hurting kids. But that's clearly not the case. This episode of Citizens is also brought to you by Ghostbed dot com forward slash drinker bros right now ghostbed is offering 40 percent off ghostbed bundles where you get a mattress and an adjustable base for everything else 30 percent off if you use the code drinking bros at ghostbed.com forward slash drinker bros if you get the uh 40 off deal if you use the 40 off bundle deal you're gonna get uh, a mattress and all your stuff your base your sheets your pillows all this stuff for about 30 to 35 bucks a month. They've got a zero down, 0% financing plan for up to 60 months, six zero months, that's five years, uh, about the lifespan of the average bed. So it works out great for you, works out great for uh, the company. So go check it out, go to ghostbed.com for slash drinker bros. Whether you're in the market for a bed, uh, an adjustable base, whether you just need sheets or pillows or any of that stuff, they got the best, the mattress protector, the weighted blanket. They have everything you need there, 30% off everything, Use the code drinking bros at ghostbed.com forward slash drinking bros. Or if you need that adjustable base as well and the mattress, get the bundle and everything else you add onto that deal is 40% off. This episode is also brought to you by First Form. Firstform.com forward slash drinking bros. The product they really want you using is the micro factor. It's a complete daily nutrient pack. Now, what's in it? Antioxidants, CoQ10, great for heart health, multivitamins. 
uh, greens and reds, which is to say fruits and veggies, then EFA, which is to say fats that you need. And then they got a probiotic in there as well. It's an easy little packet. You just dump it all in your fucking mouth and swallow, uh, probably with some liquid, preferably water. Um, they got all kinds of other great products as well. Uh, talking about those meat sticks, the breakfast sausage meat stick is the best thing I've ever had in my life. And then of course they have energy drinks. They've got all kinds of stuff over there. They got great protein, the best supplements on the market. If you spend over 75 bucks, you're going to get free shipping. So go to firstform.com forward slash drinker bros and get those deals. Yeah. You know, and it's, it's so interesting that in those situations, like when you bring up those types of things, um, you know, the things that I think we agree are like the clear cut examples in society where the, I think what's best for kids is clearly on the line, like drag queen story time and shit like that. You know, it's like, then the strangest thing happens is that the progressive liberal parents who coddle these children through everything, choose that moment to go, well, my, my kids are smart and they can figure things out for themselves. And it's like, well, this is the, this is quite an interesting time to take that stance when you have not, looked at healthy problem solving competition or adversity in any other situation in your child's life except for this so it's kind of again it's kind of it's like so transparent when you start to unpack it and you just go like so this is the place where you feel like your kids are adult enough to make adult decisions when they're being sexualized against their will but you don't think they can make their own decisions when it comes to so many of these other everyday things that you you now believe are traumatic for them to have to go through um and it and it just tells you what the agenda is i mean you know it's it's unfortunate but it's to me it's plain as day and those are like those are the things that to me are like socially non-negotiable like that's one thing where people just go like yeah i don't have a problem with it i just go cool like there's no like you said there's no true north for us to have any friendship or relationship over there have to be some things as a society we agree on are non-negotiables and uh i always thought like you said protecting children and and patriotism were the Mm -hmm. two things right like that was the one nice thing about post 9 11 was that there was this sort of thing of like listen you know we're all different things but we're all american and that has to be protected and now i don't even know if we were attacked in that way today if we would have that same response yeah it's funny i remember most of the most, if not all, the political debates I had in the early 2000s or even during my time in the military through 2010 or so, um, <clears throat> you know, there would be pretty stark contrast in, in our root ideology, I guess. And we would go back and forth and sometimes it would get heated. Like, I don't think we should be doing this. I don't think we should be doing this. I think we should do this, whatever. Um, and then towards the end, when you know, when you start to get, when the conversation starts to wind down and both people want to exit gracefully, you're like, well, at least we're not communists, right? I mean, and it, I, I had so many conversations and not necessarily communists specifically, but there would, there would always be like, well, you know, you're probably right about this. I don't agree with that, but at least it's not this. You know what I mean? And there, that, mm-hmm. whatever that, at least it's not, it was the red line in the sand that we all agreed was like, it's it's the Overton window, right? We can operate in this general area right here. And I never, <laughs> maybe I'm naive, I guess, but I really never expected that cutting kids' dicks off and giving them fucking hormones when they're fucking 12 years old was going to be a thing. I just didn't, I, I yeah. don't know why, I just didn't see that coming. Never saw that being on the menu either. It's, uh, it's very bizarre. And it's almost like... Uh, it makes me think of 1984, the, the, I think it's the last paragraph of the book. It's just like, in the end, the party would say that two plus two equals five and you would have to believe it because the logic of their position demands it. Um, mm-hmm. It's like, we have, to, we have to push this so far that anybody that can be labeled as a potential dissenter gets labeled as such. You know what yeah. I mean? And uh, then we know, what, which is useful for both sides. I think it's useful for... You know, whomever's trying to to manufacture consent and do away with dissent. Uh, but I think it's also useful for ordinary people to see who the collaborators are going to be. You know what I mean? Like all these people who capitulated over the last couple of years to all the bullshit that happened from the government. I'm deeply suspicious of all those people now. Yeah, I agree. Uh, particularly with, um, 
you know, COVID mandates. Like that was a big one because there were people that like, you know, I found them historically, we were like politically aligned. Um, and then you see how they sort of live when push comes to shove and it's time to make a choice based on um, how it actually genuinely affects you. And it's amazing how many people sort of absconded from their sense of values when it meant that it could cost them something. You know, and and um, you mentioned your military service. Thank you for that. Mm -hmm. um, but that to me is like how how you can have and this is almost where I, I would love to get your opinion on this, where I feel like forced military service is another thing that we could potentially look at as a way to, like, fix the country. But to think that there are people who believe in the concept of America so much that they're willing to make the ultimate sacrifice um, for what they feel like it means to them or to their family or, or, or anything or even on a grander more existential level of what the concept of America means for Earth and all of human civilization because I do think it's important um, there are people who weren't even willing to say no to an involuntary vaccination because they didn't want to lose their job like so when you have that degree of being a pussy and then you have both my parents were veterans by the way when you have those people who literally at age 19 20 21 were willing to go to war because of what they believed america represented in the world it's like two completely different ends of the spectrum in terms of like bravery and purpose and and fundamental belief in something <clears throat> uh yeah to to the point um the first point about uh i guess mandatory service not everybody belongs in the military right and and I'm I, I'm a big believer in that. I was an infantryman in the 82nd Airborne. We were pretty uh, pretty aggressive, you know what I mean. And I don't want pussies around me when I'm doing that kind of work. But so oh, absolutely, like yeah. civil service, volunteering in your local community. I wouldn't have a problem with tying voting rights to something like that, like Starship Troopers or some shit. You don't have to serve in the military, and but you got to serve your community some way, right? I think that's an important. Yeah, you can serve thing. your country in some municipal capacities. Yeah. You know, you could mow lawns for, mm. for government properties. I don't give a shit, but something, you know. I definitely don't. I definitely don't believe we should have like people who lack skills doing things that require a high degree of skill. Sure. Of yeah. yeah, but like um, Meals on Wheels needs drivers. Right. You know what I mean? Old people need help. Sick people need help. Mentally ill people need help. Uh, uh, it, it's, it, it, you know, and I think it's. To your point from before, it demonstrate or it it allows for this natural avenue, um, and maybe it's maybe it's something that you require to graduate high school, right? Where you have yeah. to do instead of learning a fucking foreign language for four years, you you spend time helping your actual community. You know what I mean? Instead, yeah. or or maybe you add to it. I don't know, but. Dude, um, I think about all the time we wasted in high school with study halls and bullshit electives and stuff. And it's like you could have taken every single kid in my graduating class for two hours a day and made them do something in the community. And it would have been light years more valuable to both the community and us as individuals to have been forced to do that than the nonsense we wasted time doing in high school. Yeah. And then, you know, it, it builds this attitude that. It, it, it creates the very linear connection between effort and outcome, which I think we've kind of lost in, uh, in oh, yeah. Western society. It's just like the expectation that things are all going to go okay. Like, well, I don't know what fucking world you live in. You know what I mean? Cause, cause I, and I think that's the kind of naive and, and ridiculous attitude that allows people to look at people who uh, are successful and say, well, you're successful because you're a man or you're, you're white or, or whatever, you're straight, whatever. So you were, you had more opportunity to be successful. It's like, no, I grew up in a fucking poor ass family with, a, with an abusive dad. And I decided to fucking make my life better instead of mm -hmm. settling and, and being a dick. Like I could have been, you know what I mean? Mm -hmm. So it gives that perspective, which I think is super necessary. And <clears throat> to the point of the, uh, of people being willing to, to sacrifice for their country, the the thing that I think sets apart, I don't know about this, the most current generation of, of military people, because I just don't, I don't know many of them. I know, I know some younger people, but not many. Um, but my generation primarily joined the military because of 9-11, right? So, same with mine. Yeah. yeah. We're probably around the same age. Yeah. So it's like the, the, 
there's, there's a couple of questions. So one, what is America to these people? Uh, myself included, America is, is an effigy of your family, right? It's this psychological process called Ken selection. It's who after like outside of genetics and family trees, it's who you decide throughout your life is going to be under the umbrella of your protection. If you're a man, right? Like that's my family. It's, it's your buddies. It's your fucking, sometimes it's your coworkers, whatever people that you get involved in through whatever means, uh, it's called Ken selection for the American warfighter. Uh, the difference between them and everybody else, I think, is that uh, it's a very unique assembly of people, right? So there's no <laughs> there's no Azov battalion of all white supremacists in our in our military. You you can't there's there's no right. like there's no niche racial or cultural element inside the military. The entire thing is made up of fucking moving parts from all over, from every possible ethnicity, culture, sometimes even nationalities, right? Um, they consider you have you look past that. It's like Arlie Ermey, right? In uh in in full metal jacket. There's no black or white. You're light and dark green, basically, right? Mm -hmm. So it's like you look past that bullshit. And you start to consider any human being committed to liberty to be part of your family, regardless of what they believe, what they look like, who they love, sometimes even where they were born, because we have quite a few foreigners in our military as well. And they fight, they fight against governments and, you know, groups that fucking murder people, murder, throw gay people off rooftops, religious and ethnic, ethnic minorities are oppressed because they've seen that kind of evil before. And they know that liberty does, doesn't just extend to people who look, think, and feel like you do, but it's a privilege that is earned in blood, right? Mm -hmm. And they fight because they know that a threat to liberty anywhere is a threat to liberty everywhere. And I think it's yeah. – and they also fight this, – this is the main lesson that I think that service teaches you. <clears throat> Excuse me. They fight for each other because they know in a way that most people never will be able to know – that we can't do this alone, right? Like it, it's to your point from before, there is no doing this alone. There's not, I, there are things that I'm not physically or mentally capable of doing. And I need people like that to exist for my life to work, right? So we've made things super comfortable for ourselves now. And we've lost a lot of perspective on what it takes. People look down their noses at ditch diggers and mechanics and shit. And mechanics look down their nose at intellectuals in a lot of ways as well, right? Yeah. And it's the wrong fucking answer. Yeah. Yeah, you're right. Yeah, so, I, I just, uh, you know, so as far as, like, those types of um, hurdles, you know, and how to get over them, I think anything that sort of forces those people to kind of be around each other, gain perspective and, and, um, you know, the, the difficulty is right now we live in an America where one side definitely has sort of their finger on the scale, you know, and is having the ability to affect things in a more direct and sort of widespread destructive way. Um, and I just don't think there are enough people willing to sort of fight for it. You know, it's it's kind of funny because <laughs> this gets always gets me in trouble when I say this, but like I was excited on January 6th. I thought Americans collectively, or at least a group of them, had decided that enough was enough. And then when you tuned into it and you saw that it was sort of a guided tour um, and and almost like a, like a flash mob and not an actual uh, merited response to government corruption, um, it was a little disappointing because I thought we had finally gotten to the point. And, and what I continuously said after that was, there's a reason why they kept that fence up. It's not because of what happened. It's because of what they know they deserve. And, <clears throat> you know, it's, it's interesting because, um, you know, I know that that's a sentiment that is held by so many Americans. And every day, so many of us just go like, what is my fight? Like, what is the thing that's going to call me to action? And, uh, you know, like you, I think I'm, I'm always entertained and always interested in seeing, like, what's going to be that thing? Like you said, I thought protecting children might be that thing or protecting elections might be that thing or, you know, agreeing that the sky is blue and it's above us might be the thing. But 
the the window keeps moving and shifting to where we're willing to accept so much uh insanity and corruption and nonsense uh because it just doesn't directly affect us yeah people ask me a lot uh when when somebody going to do something about this or when are we going to do something and i it's an interesting question i mean one what does that really mean but to to the point um people are going to have to get really uncomfortable right yeah. before before anything legit really happens <clears throat> i mean yeah i think it's going to take an ele of some kind like may, an maybe yeah. level event yeah uh it, um, it's some something like that or like right now a lot is being held over people's heads I mean, we saw how fucking far people would go just to keep their shitty jobs you know what i mean so how yeah. far will they go to maintain what little money they have in the bank or maintain their mortgage you know what i mean or their their retirement fund or whatever it is which is completely digital now completely under control if you don't believe that look at the canadian trucker protests where if you gave over 20 bucks to their gofundme your bank account got seized or at least yeah. frozen right so if you don't think western governments have this power they've already demonstrated within the last two years so yeah. it's like people are going to have to lose that comfort i think an economic collapse in the u.s which uh, you know hopefully <clears throat> We're on the verge of. Yeah, I wouldn't count on it because the Republicans are just they're fucking pussies too. But yeah. if they if they say no to this debt limit increase, I think that would be a really good thing for us. Yeah. Yeah, I agree. Some short term pain is uh often a remedy for long term pain. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's like ripping a band aid. Mm. Yeah, I think uh I think that's a good one. I think it's a start. It's something um it's also just an opportunity to draw a line in the sand and go we just can't keep changing the rules when we don't like our failure you know and that that is a big that's a big part of how we got here was that we started changing the rules when we started failing and now we've just continuously moved the goalposts and continued to do that i mean we, we did it with the bailouts during the obama administration um, and it's not just economically and in government, it's 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 affecting everything now, sociopolitically and in people's everyday lives, you know, like. Um, well, we redefined even, inflation and recession in the past two years somehow. Yeah. We're, like words that have meant something very specific since the 1930s have now been redefined because it's politically expedient to do so. That's kind of fucked, right? Yeah. Yeah, and, and a lot of this stuff is just continuing to happen, and they're continuing to get away with it because, you know, nobody's putting their foot down, like, to the point you just made. Even the Republicans in government aren't putting their foot down, you know, and, and, and saying, like, this, this has to stop. We just have to say no to this. So, you know, the, the border crisis, all these things are, are sort of reflective of one side making bad choices and the other side doing nothing about it. Yeah, um, yeah. You know, and that's that's where I sort of like <clears throat> descend from political ideology across the board, because I don't think your politics are, are are determined by what you think or say. I think they're determined by your actions. And so what people sit around and arbitrage, I'm liberal, I'm conservative, I'm hey, you're fucking nothing. You're a you're a you're a convenience store. Mm. That's what you are. You know what I mean? Like you will go whatever way makes your life easier on whatever thing. You know, there are two types of people in the world, those who are principled and those who are not. And I, and I would rather be in the company of somebody who adamantly disagrees with everything I, I say or think, but is willing to lose based on their principles and face hardship based on their principles than somebody who agrees with me on paper, but is not willing to make that same sacrifice. Yeah. One of the best quotes in the history of human politics, I would say, is uh, <clears throat> when John Adams was appointed during, by the Continental Congress to be the ambassador to Great Britain after the Revolutionary War ended. And uh, King George was kind of asking him some questions, and, and jo John Adams being John Adams, who's, he's kind of a cunt, to be honest, uh, was very frank with the king. And uh, King George replied to him, an honest man will never have any other. And I think that's a very, like, it's a, it's a very smart thing to say for a guy who's, the commander in chief essentially of the largest, most powerful army in the history of humanity that just got beat down by a bunch yeah. of fucking farmers. You know what I mean? But, mm -hmm. um, yeah, I, I, I sincerely believe in that you were either principled or you're not like all this, all this other fucking, 
all the other shit you're saying is meaningless to me. Let's cut through that and get to the meat and potatoes here. I don't like all the preamble nonsense. Like, well, my pronouns are this. Here's where I went to school. Here's my bio. Like, I don't give a fuck. Tell me your idea. Your idea should stand on its own. If it can't, then fuck off. Pretty simple. Yeah, man. <sighs> so you're uh, wearing a Lehigh Valley Iron Pigs hat, right? Is that what that is? <laughs> How did you figure that out? Uh, well, I know what Wawa is, so I know what oh, the, I know go. what the hoagie looks like. And there's yeah, only yeah. there's so only one I, team that does that. <laughs> they do they do this series every year of uh, they have a cheesesteak one a couple of years ago, which mm. I got, and then this year they did the hoagie one. Yeah. So yeah, yeah, those are dope. I, uh, I think I may have gotten an advertisement for for it from uh, Fanatics or some shit. I don't remember. I buy a bunch of weird ass stuff like that. Yeah, I like, uh, uh, you know, it, it makes more sense for me to have a, a hat with a sandwich on it than a team because I don't <laughs> present as an athlete to anybody anymore. <laughs> as a matter of fact, I tried to reminisce my old athlete days of being a hockey player during the pandemic. I bought a pair of skates and got on them and forgot that I had ballooned up in pounds and uh, broke my foot just trying to skate. And uh, it's just has still not healed right. I have this broken bone in the middle of my right foot, and it's just never it's never healed right. What is it, a Liz Frank or something? Yeah, exactly. It's that right sucks. there. Um, yeah. So I just get it just gets sore again. Like not to complain, but it's you know it just gets sore. It swells sometimes. You know, it's just a nuisance. Well, at least you know when it's gonna rain. Um, and uh, hopefully it's not affecting you too much on your comedy tour. Let's get into that before we uh, before we finish up here. It's yeah. the uh, the end racism tour. Um, where what's it all about? Who's who's there? Who's performing? And then where are you guys going to be? Yeah, so it's myself, Anthony Cumia, Gavin McInnes, and then our producer Ryan Rivera. Uh, he's kind of like our host and master of ceremonies for these events. And uh, essentially, we're sort of going around the country and and trying to you know, do a stand-up tour that is sort of reminiscent of the stand-up we all grew up with, where it pulls no punches, it's no holds barred, and there's, you know, no censorship of any kind, there's no uh, self-regulation. It's really, like, built around the idea that comedy can be anything. The end racism branding really was in response to the liberal pushback and then government interference we got at the end of last year, where uh, people were sort of so easily or in such an easy way able to kind of uh, depict our show as something that it wasn't is like a white supremacist rally, which is sort of the go-to anytime you're not super woke and liberal. So <laughs> Gavin had the idea of like, what if we just promote the tour as super woke and liberal um, so that if anybody ever tries to say like, this is a hate rally, then it just doesn't pass the smell test. Um and it's actually worked pretty well so far. It's worked so well that when we did a couple of them in Los Angeles, we actually sold some tickets to people who had no idea of the sarcasm of the branding and legitimately thought that they were showing up to see four homosexual disabled people to uh, <laughs> stand up well, or sit down, whatever you want to call it. And so immediately they were just like, these guys aren't disabled and this isn't what I thought it was. So we had a couple of walkouts uh, from the show, but it, it kind of made me feel good because I go, well, at least our ads are working. And we're selling tickets to people that aren't are are just our already core audience. Oh my god! I got you. Really have to wonder about someone who goes to a comedy show that's all like handicapped gay people. That's like, is that the that's the draw these days, right? For that's some for some thought, folks, the fact that you thought you were going to see that and were disappointed that you didn't. Yeah, that's really like, weird. I would love to interview that person. Oh my god! Well, they would never sit for the interview, unfortunately. But it would be funny yeah. if they did. I'd love to hear it. Um, be like, what was your logic in thinking that this was going to be for you? Or funny. Like, I, I I know gay comics that are funny. I've met a couple of uh, handicapped comics that are pretty fucking funny, too, but not because of either one of those things, right? They were funny because they're funny. Yeah, one of my one of my favorite comics, and who's a good buddy of mine, I think so, um, I, I regard him as a good buddy, is Ty Rivera, who's mm. a gay conservative comedian there in Austin. Yeah. And, um, you know, one of my favorite things about Ty is we, we've had several conversations where he's like, these new fags have ruined what it means to be a fag. It used to be <laughs> taboo and it used to be edgy and it used to be underground. It used to be cool. And they've taken all that out of it. Yeah, they've taken the same road as uh, 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 Rage Against the Machine, right? Yeah. Well, they've kind of done to being gay what they've done to comedy. They've, they've softened all the edges. 
They've taken all the character out of what it takes to do it. Like used to have, used to have to have balls to be a comedian. Mm. Used to have to have balls to be out as a gay person. And now it's so well accepted and it's so um, dull and safe and like padded that it doesn't mean anything anymore. So you have people just going up and saying their opinions, calling themselves comedians. And you have uh, some kid who's never been persecuted, ridiculed or made fun of uh, for anything in life, talking about how hard it is for him to be gay. Uh, he's like, I only have 50 trophies at home for being gay. Uh, what kind of life is that? <laughs> yeah, it's like uh, Target came out with a new um, clothing line based on my lifestyle. And that somehow constitutes oppression these days. Yeah, I mean, uh, it's, you know, it's hard, hard to put your finger on that, to be honest my culture isn't your prom dress type of stuff. Well, you know, not to spoil my act, but there's, I, I kind of address that in how it pertains to school shootings and straight white guys <laughs> and how those are being taken away from us too. Now oh, it's so. all trans people and fucking Latinos. Now what the fuck, dude? I thought we had one thing. <laughs> that was our last thing was the mass yeah. <laughs> shooting. And now they're taking that away from us too. All right. So where, uh, I, have got a small schedule here. You guys are in, uh, here in Austin on June 16th, uh, July 15th in Tampa, July 16th in Palm beach, uh, Baltimore, August 18th and Las Vegas, September 9th. Is that all? Or is there, are there more shows in that? No, we'll have more. We'll be in Dallas in October, uh, New York. Uh, those will all go on sale here probably in, um, uh, June. Okay. So June, July, like we'll, we'll have a, a second batch of dates. We want to go to Nashville as well. We're trying like hell to find a venue there, but Nashville is surprisingly woke. It's kind of like Austin, you know, at mm. least Austin has this like heavy comedy community. Nashville is just like very, very liberal in terms of the concert venues and stuff like that. So having a little bit of difficulty with Nashville, but uh, yeah, there's a, probably a handful of other cities we'll add to the tour by the end of the year. Cool. Tell everybody where they can find you so they can keep uh, keep track of all this stuff. Yeah, all that, that stuff you can find at joshdennycomedy.com. If you want tickets to the End Racism Tour, just go to tinyurl.com slash censored live. You can link that from my website as well. Cool, man. Well, look, thanks for coming today. It's been a fun conversation. I like talking shit. Um, nobody seems to have an appetite for it anymore, but I enjoy it. Yeah, no, it's, it's always good to meet people who... Uh, you know, aren't afraid to get into the weeds mm. conversationally and, and like actually have real conversation, not just nonsense and bullshit all the time. Yeah. Yeah. Same. Uh, well, and if you're in Austin, man, and you're around on the 16th, you'll have to come out to the show. I'll get your info. And uh, yeah, I think, uh, what is that? A, that's a fucking Friday. Friday. Yeah. Friday. Yeah. I'll be here. I'll be here for that. Yeah. Man. Um, yeah. I'll let you know. Yeah. Let me know. All right. Cool, man. Thanks for coming. Appreciate it. Uh, and thank you all for listening. This has been citizen.